The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Good afternoon everyone, this is Mary Woods. I'm your host today uh, on One Hour at a Time and I think we have a really uh, fascinating topic. Um, We're going to be talking about rewiring the brain and understanding neuroscience and its contribution to long-term recovery for both the drug addict and the alcoholic and the family. And um, while we often talk about addiction being a brain disease, I'm not quite sure we always um, characterize it as such or do we really look at treatment that um, would help support the long-term neuroplasticity uh, and the neuro recovery of um the brain cells when someone has a substance use disorder. And our ho- and our guest today is Lisa Fredrickson, who um, I'm going to let her introduce herself because um, I think it's really fascinating that she got um, so involved in, in this topic. So welcome to our show, Lisa. Could you just introduce yourself to our guest and explain how you got um, interested in neuroscience? Sure, you bet. Thank you, first of all, for having me. I really appreciate this opportunity. Um, In 2003, one of my loved ones went into treatment for alcoholism, and prior to that time, I had been writing and publishing books mostly related to women's history and civil rights movements, so I was very familiar with research and um, enjoyed that process of having a question and wanting to dig deeper to understand what it was. And so... When my loved one started treatment, they had a very good family uh, treatment program that was part of the whole process. And one of the premise or the statements was that addiction was a disease. And I had always had a very difficult time trying to appreciate that statement because it still seemed as a choice they were choosing to drink. So um, as it would turn out, I've had many uh family members who grapple with either drinking too much or with alcoholism. And so I finally at this stage really wanted to understand what it was, what it was about um, alcoholism that kept me kind of looped in, if you will, and, and, you know, just how you could find your way out from it. So I shifted my research from women's history and civil rights into all things addiction, and that's how I um, started down that path. And there's a great body of knowledge now thanks to these new imaging capabilities like spec scans or PET scans or functional MRIs that allow scientists to study the live human brain and what those imagings help, I think, is to see what substance abuse actually does to the brain. And then when you appreciate that the brain is what controls everything we think, feel, say, and do, it's that understanding that gives you the power to appreciate that it was the changes in the brain, the chemical and structural changes that causes the person to behave the way they do. And then that just led to further questions and, and on it went. Um, it's, it's 
it's also fascinating to me because um, a number of years ago I was at a meeting where Enoch Gordas, who was then the director of NIAAA, met with some of us and said, you know, in 10 years we're going to, you're not even going to recognize how we treat addiction because of what we're, we're beginning to understand about the brain. And so could you just basically, for our listeners, go over the kind of basics of the brain so that people sure. can understand how, how, how that yeah. works? Well, first, one thing to understand is just its simplest definition of a disease is something that changes cells. So some diseases will attach just a particular organ, um, say breast cancer, for example, some will attack a whole body system, um, like diabetes, and this particular disease uh, attacks cells in the brain, attack for lack of a better word. And what happens with addiction is the way a neural network, which is what controls everything throughout the body, the, uh, they go from the brain you know, to every extremity and back, it requires a neurotransmitter and neurons and then branch-like extensions that they call dendrites or axons. And not to get too complicated, but the real key is the neurotransmitter that takes the message, which is an electrical signal, across what they call a synapse, which is a gap between two you know, these branch-like extensions. It actually converts it into something that can cross this gap and then bind to receptors on the receiving end and send it on to the next neuron. And, and these are just so fast <laughs> happening throughout um, any kind of a neural network along a pathway. So what substances do is they go after neural networks in the limbic system, which are ones that control our pleasure, our feelings of um, enjoyment, and they start to interrupt that. what happens at that synapse. And so if a cue triggers somebody to want to have a drink, that feeling of the pleasure of having the drink starts to become a memory. Um, yes, when I was under stress and I had the drink, I calmed down and that felt good. And you develop these brain maps, if you will, which is an expression for neurons that fire together, wiring together. And we have brain maps for everything we do. Um, for example, if a person stands up, that's a brain map that controls how what all the body does, but it's without thinking. And those same kinds of brain maps start to exist when a person's substance abuse um, continues to such an extent that they cross the line to addiction. Now, to specifically answer your question, substances go after the neural networks involved in the limbic system with the pleasure reward, and it gives the person the feeling of pleasure for using the substance. The neurotransmitter with that is dopamine, and if a person continues to abuse the substance, it causes surges of dopamine in the synapse. And the brain, in its beauty, dials down the receptors, and it dials down the amount of dopamine it's producing just because it can't handle that much. So then the person has the memory, the brain map, that when I substance, that made me feel good. So they continue to try to substance or use more trying to get that feel-good feeling, but the brain has dialed down the dopamine and losing receptors and can't get it. So that's where the person starts to build up a tolerance. They start to lose control. And, and then just the way the limbic system works, neural networks in there, you have cravings, and the cravings for a, for a substance can become five times stronger than the hardwired instinctual cravings to... Um, eat food when hungry, or drink water. They work in that part of the brain. Does that 
help at all, or is that way too complicated? Yeah, well, actually, that's that's probably one of the more easier uh, explanations to understand that that I've heard. I, I think um, one of the things that um, that I think I've learned over the years is that for some people. Um, that have substance use disorders or addiction, Mm -hmm. their ability to manufacture their own dopamine may be impaired or maybe they've never had enough so that when they first use a substance, whether it's alcohol, marijuana, cocaine, um, an opiate, it's all of a sudden they feel dramatically different. And that's Uh, absolutely true. So that would be the genetic component. So while what I just described causes the structural and chemical changes, then people have their own risk factors, and there's five that are key that make those per, that person more susceptible to those brain changes, if you will. And one of them is genetics. So some people will be born with, like you just said, lower, trans, lower levels of transmit, neurotransmitters, or they might be born with uh, fewer receptors. Or, you know, so that's definitely one, yeah. And then it can also be... This is another key part that we didn't really understand until recently is that the brain goes from birth through about 25 through a developmental process. We used to think the brain was developed at age 10, uh, 12, you know, mm-hmm. but it, um, it really goes through a dramatic change from 12 to 25, and let me just start with the beginning. So from zero to three, we are born with about 100 billion brain cells, which is much of them. I mean, we do, there, we do have the ability to regenerate, but if we came out and all of our neuro, neurons were wired or our neural networks were wired, we would come out with the ability to do what we do as adults, but we don't. So what's happening in that first three years of life is the, the brain starts to wire in response to sound, sight, touch, and smell and because we can't read, so we can't get this information in other ways. And what is happening in a child's life during that three years is of particular importance because that's how they learn to perceive the world, to trust that their needs are getting met, you know, that type thing. Mm -hmm. So then from around four to the start of puberty, the brain's going through more wiring. Trillions of networks are wiring at this time. And then right at, we we start puberty, and this is another instinctual hardwired um, function, if you will, in the human species, in the limbic system, and that was one to keep us producing and uh, raising the next generation before we died at 25 early on. In fact, there's a great exhibit at the Smithsonian's National um, Natural History Museum of the brain, and it shows the brain in early man with pretty much the cerebellum and the limbic system. The cerebral cortex didn't come till much later. So that's What's happening in humans now, we develop the cerebral cortex, which is the thinking part of our brain that, if you will, puts the brakes back on the limbic system as well as just develops the neural networks that help us with judgment, cause and effect, and why young people often do things that they really don't have a good answer for why they did because they they didn't know it wasn't wired yet. And so... um, the limbic system being what it is, is to push the human species to take risks so that you you almost picture it as a bird who jumps out of a nest. Why would you do that? But that's just instinctual. We've got to do this sometime and fly. So the limbic system is engaged from for all that time. And then what happens from during puberty is we start to develop the cerebral cortex more fully, which then is what sort of gives a balance to the brain. 
There's also something else. So there's three things that go on from 12 to 25, which is why early use, which is another risk factor, is such a big contributing uh, reason to addiction if somebody's using during this critical period because puberty causes its own physical and chemical and hormonal changes, so that's one. Second, as I just mentioned, was the cerebral cortex development. But then thirdly is this pruning and strengthening process because it does take a neural network to have an activity. The brain, everything somebody has done to that point has been at least a rough draft, if you will. And so the brain says, whoa, we've got to figure out what we're using here, strengthen those neural networks so that they become very efficient. And then what we're not using, we're going to sort of let go. Not that they die, they just aren't strengthened. And so those neural networks actually myelinate, they call it, which kind of gives it a more efficient transmission. So from this 12 to 25, if somebody starts substancing those will and becomes uh, you know, very intense about it, those will be the neural networks that are strengthened and the ones that might be used for learning calculus or playing a sport will be the ones that are pruned, if you will, or go into disuse. So it's not so much that the brain cells die as it is it's lost neural network opportunities. You don't know what you might have done if you weren't substancing during those, that period. So it's this critical developmental process from 0 to 25 that we need to try to understand better as a means of helping people appreciate an adolescent brain is not the brain of an adult, and that's why an adolescent brain can be so severely impacted by substance abuse during this period because, um, you know, it's, that's the wiring. Well, and that's when most people start experimenting with yes. um, alcohol and drugs. And we'll be right back with okay. Lisa after this commercial. If you have any questions or comments, please give us a call. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Can you imagine a technology that takes human consciousness to the next level? One that reveals a new understanding of what is valuable and possible in the abundant support of life? The truth is, we already have that technology. We simply need to awaken to it and become the value it creates. For more about this, please tune in to Awakening Value, Shamanic Technologies of Consciousness and Success with host Marty Spiegelman. Awakening Value is live every Thursday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. Step into the doorway to conscious choice, greater health, and well-being. Attain the balance that you've been seeking. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. Feed the mind. Embrace positively. Release the tension. Step out of fear. Host Simran Singh will help you broaden your mind and open your heart toward a greater understanding of how to take charge of your life. 1111 Talk Radio is here every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network. 1111 Talk Radio. Because shift happens. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned 
common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. And welcome back, everyone, to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods, and our guest today is Lisa Fredrickson. And we're talking about um, understanding the neuroscience and its contribution to long-term recovery for both the person with um, alcoholism and drug addiction and the family member. And uh, Lisa was very modest when she introduced herself. I just wanted to um, share with you some of her um, accomplishments she has been presenting on substance use and addiction and dual disorders, underage drinking, and help for the family-centered around the 21st century brain and addiction-related research since 2004. Her books include Loved One in Treatment, Now What? And If You Loved Me, You'd Stop. Um, frame her work, including trainings, workshops, and presentations for Stanford Medical School, Fort Irwin National Training Center, the County of Sa- Santa Clara Department of Alcohol and Drug Services, the SMC Bar Association, Family Law Section, and NAMI uh, Santa Clara County. Lisa Fredrickson and her associate at BreakingTheCycles.com, Carol Fowler, uh, who is a marriage and family therapist, work with um, people with drug addiction and alcoholism and families um, to develop contractual continuing care plans. So, um, Lisa, uh, once again, um, you've done a lot of work in a lot of different areas, but this whole concept of the brain um, from birth to age 25 developing and the use of substances along any part of that developmental continuum can really affect then how um, the person behaves and what their response is to um, alcohol or drugs. Am I correct? That's correct. And other, there's, so there's five key risk factors that contribute to this brain um, wiring along that continuum. So we talked about early use and the other one, genetics. But then there's social environment. So if a person grows up in a social environment where heavy drinking or addiction is viewed, quote-unquote, as normal in that it's somehow normalized in the family, that level of consumption is also considered normal to them. So it's not unusual that they will then drink at those quantities or use. And, again, depending on their brain and at what stage this starts, that can influence um, a long-term problem with substance abuse or addiction. So social environment. Another one is childhood trauma because, as I was mentioning, the way a person starts to process the world and develop coping skills if, if there's verbal or physical or emotional abuse going on, you have a different, well, what happens is you stay stuck in another instinctual part of the brain, if you will, called the, in the limbic system, in the fight or flight system. And I'll describe that in a minute so I don't get too confusing. But um, So that was the fourth one. Let's see, genetics, early use, um, social environment, childhood. Oh, mental illness is, a, is the fifth key one. Again, that would have difference, just like a brain disease, mental illness has 
um, structural changes in the brain that either it's an interruption in neurotransmitters or lower or higher levels or maybe receptors. And so you have, at that point, oftentimes a person substancing to alleviate the mental illness, the symptoms. Um, so if you're depressed, you might drink to get the feel-good feeling, for example. So if you start substancing to self-medicate a mental illness, now you've got two um, brain issues going on, and that can be particularly difficult. So it's that combination all happening as a person's brain's developing. And that's why looking at one's risk factors, when you kind of think back and you go, oh, well, okay, it is in my family of origin, um, or it, uh, you know, I, I went to college and everybody was drinking, or high school, all my friends drank. Of course, we all drank. Well, if your brain maybe is has a different genetic makeup, then that could affect you differently than someone else. And so it's really important to look at our risk factors as part of this process because that just helps explain it. And, and the biggest thing for me is to help people let go of the shame. Nobody, nobody sets out to substance, whether it's drinking or using drugs, and change their behaviors to the point where it hurts somebody else. That's never their intention. But because they think somehow they can control how much they use, they keep using, hoping for a better outcome. And um, But what happens is the substance goes right back in and kicks those neural networks and, embed, and triggers that brain map, and so you're going to kind of come out with the same outcome every time, if you will. And that's why it's so critical that we stop it at the abuse stage because all alcoholics go through alcohol abuse, but not all alcohol abusers become alcoholics. You don't just have to cross that line. So it's, it's a bigger issue if we can start to address the, the alcohol abuse early on. And, and that's where with young people it's often easy to say, well, all kids drink or I drank and I'm fine, that type thing. And so we allow it. But again, it's, if you will, training your brain. <laughs> so if, a, if, if instead we say, you know, it's not healthy for the brain until it's fully developed and, and then it's only healthy in moderation. Um, so talk about it differently. But I just really want to emphasize, for me, understanding the brain disease aspect and how it unraveled the brain, this was not a personal choice of anybody that I've known. And as I mentioned, I have family members. I have friends who have grappled with this. It's just, it's, oh, my gosh, so freeing to understand what it really was about. And it's much more prevalent than um, I think people want to acknowledge as mm -hmm. well. You know, and what I keep talking to people about is, like, alcohol does not cause alcoholism. Co cocaine doesn't cause cocaine addiction. You know, because if that were true, everybody who drank would get it, you know. Right. If you're exposed to um, a staph infection, you're going to get a staph infection regardless. And mm -hmm. and I think that it's really difficult for a lot of people because it, it looks like they're self-inflicted, you know. Right. Well, you're out there drinking, you know. Right. Um, I kind of feel the same way when I see people in the grocery store who are morbidly obese on the little electric carts bombing around the, the store getting, you know, getting all stocked up on food. And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, you know, you'd be so much better if you just walked. Yeah. Um, you know, so I, I think some of it, it's like in, it's kind of our nature because we, we don't understand that, you know, people don't start out wanting to be morbidly obese or alcoholic or drug addicted, and, um, and, and there is a considerable stigma attached to it. I think that that's one thing about, um, you know, helping families understand that um, 
that this is stuff is going on in the brain and and I think in terms of recovery when someone um enters into recovery and they're they're abstinent there's still a lot of brain changes that have to occur absolutely that is so true and the perception is whew, we got him in treatment now everything's going to be okay well the addiction or the model for treating a disease is you detox or stabilize and then you rehab which is to get you back to a a a, um, a level where you can maintain if you will and then you got to do continuing care because you have to if it were heart disease for example you don't just have the the quadruple bypass and then go out and go back to your old behaviors and we recognize that and understand that and and help people through that and if they do do some part wrong we say geez you know you really need to do xyz but with addiction if somebody, when you have embedded brain maps, and depending on how long you've been doing it, the, the, the feeling often is at 28 days or 30 days or two years, oh, you know, I've handled it. I haven't had, I haven't had any drinks. I haven't had any urge to drink. But, you know, I think I can handle it now. Excuse me now. So they try it. And that's a logical assumption. But it goes back and it kicks this embedded brain map and, boom, the addiction you know, rears its ugly head and off you go again. And so that's why it's defined as a chronic, often relapsing brain disease and why treatment, so you have the detox to bring them back to a level of the body and the and to, um, you know, not die, which can happen in some cases. And then, and then you rehab them, pull out the substance, but now you've got to do the continuing care and say, okay, we've got to heal these neural networks. We have to give you something to take the place of what alcohol or your drug did for you. If you have a mental illness, we need to treat that at the same time because it's like pulling out your medicine and then saying, what's wrong with you? You're not getting better because you want to drink. You know, if somebody has what they call a dual diagnosis or co-occurring disorder, so, and then you need to look at the other risk factors. So what was it? Was there um, a traumatic event in childhood or was there a brain injury in childhood that caused changes? And, and all of this is just, wow, that explains it. Now I know what to do kind of thing. You know, for example, if somebody has cancer, there's many ways to treat it. They might do radiation. They might do chemo. They might do some combination of those with some, you know, holistic other approaches. All of that has to go into long-term recovery, too, but we have this perception and expectation is you went in for 28 days and you're healed, and you're not. Your brain has to come back. Well, not not only that, is that in recovery, you have to create a whole new mapping system. Yep. Because you you have to be able to associate being sober and dancing. If if you always danced when you were under the influence, then dancing takes on a whole new um, terror for some people or being able to go to a ball game and be sober. I mean, that's a whole new learning exactly. system and mapping system that right. that people just don't appreciate how difficult mm-hmm. that could be. Right, right. And then the interesting part is, see, on the flip side, is the family member. The perception has long been they get well and the family's well. Well, it is definitely a family disease because if the person couldn't control what their brain did with alcohol, which they couldn't, so that's what the idea of being powerless over alcohol. If you ingest alcohol, you have, cannot control the outcome on a, on a um, per, per, you know, consistent basis. So the family member trying to control that brain, it's crazy. But we don't understand that. So we think 
when we make these deals, okay, well, I'm only going to drink on the weekends or I'm only going to drink four drinks or we're going to a wedding, so I'll only drink at weddings or, you know, and they're watching and they're monitoring and they're, you know, and then they get upset because the, the deal was broken or or the person comes home and they're a half hour late and the family's watching them you know, to see what they're going to do and then they start to anticipate, oh, gosh, I wonder how much they've had and then that whole reaction so what that is for the family is they get stuck in the fight-or-flight system, which is also in the limbic system, and not the thinking part of our brain. And, you know, that part, oops, I guess we're going off, huh? Um, well, we are going to be going to break, so hold that thought, and okay. we'll be right back after this okay. next commercial. Okay. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. The Mayan calendar tells us that we will be entering into a 260-day opportunity for us to engage in conscious co-creation with great spirit. How will we prepare ourselves for this exciting and unprecedented time in Earth's history? Peter Tung has dedicated over 20 years of his life's work to exploring that which is beyond understanding. Peter will help increase your awareness and education on this enlightening transformation in consciousness. Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation airs live Wednesdays at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on 7th Wave Network. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family center recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Go behind the scenes of what you see, hear, and read on the news. Learn the ins and outs of public relations on Stars of PR with Cindy R. Every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time. Cindy Rakowitz is a Clio Award winner and founder of Rock and Roll Public Relations who wants to share her PR experiences and knowledge with you. Learn how to handle a crisis, deal with celebrities, and become a terrific PR executive. Listen to the Stars of PR with Cindy Cindy R. Every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time here on News Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods. I'm your host today, and our guest is Lisa Fredrickson. And we're talking about neuroscience and its contribution to long-term recovery for both people who um, become addicted to alcohol or drugs and their family members. And Lisa was talking before we went to break about um, what happens in early recovery for both the individual and the family. So do you want to continue with that, Lisa? Sure, sure. So just to go a little more on the, the fight or flight um, system, what happens in the brain is an emotion, which is just a reaction, 
triggers that, if it's fear or anger, for example, will trigger that that fight or flight. And it's the it was it was humans' way of staying safe. And back in the day, when we pretty much had just the cerebellum and the limbic system as the key, the main portions of the brain that were developed in early man, that was to cause man to run from the great woolly mammoth type thing. Um, they didn't have a lot of other stress in those days. But today we still have that instinctual hardwired system, but we as humans can anticipate stress. We can wonder, as we do in a family where there's untreated or undiscussed or undiagnosed alcohol or drug abuse, um, what's going to happen? I wonder if, what if she? And so that constant activation of the system which the way it was designed was to, for example, dilate the eyes so we can see better, to pull blood away from the skin surface so we don't bleed if we're cut, to break down um, glucose and send it to the brain, which is what the brain needs. It's one of its energy sources. And all these reactions go into play, but we never run. We just sit with it. And that's why family members often present with depression or anxiety or um stomach ailments, um, migraines, these physical presentations of this underlying system that is constantly being kicked. And when family members stay stuck like that, then they start to react to the feeling as if it's a fact because they never move into the cerebral cortex. They're just, (gasps) and um, that keeps them taking on any emotion and dealing with the emotion and not with what's really behind it. So for a family member, it start to recognize that feeling and then say, okay, and Dr. Ratty has this expression, is it a stick or is it a snake? And if it's a stick, you don't have to do anything. You just hop over it. If it's a snake, well, you know, we better reconsider here. And it's, or we better just run. I mean, let's go with the fight or flight, for example. So it's really quite a process that the family member has to work through because, and they've had to do this. So there's, this isn't any criticism. I mean, they, oftentimes, depending on how the alcoholic or the drug addict behaves when substancing, it might be physical danger or verbal assault or um, emotional abuse. And so they've learned to adapt to that or to cope with it or to, Pretend it's not that bad because, my gosh, we can't call somebody an addict or an alcoholic because that's really bad kind of thing. And so we just sort of have to talk about this and bring it out in the open. And it is just what it is. It's not anybody's fault. It's it's something that's happened in the brain. And until we can heal the brain, it's it's difficult um, to, uh, you know, do something different. What has been your response when you've, with, when you've worked with families and you've explained this? Um, they love it. <laughs> I often lecture with family members and addict alcoholics together, and so both sides feel, you know, uh, an understanding, not not an appreciation necessarily, but it, you just sort of start to see a tiny bit of easing of oh, feeling, and and that's 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 the way we start to start to heal is that oh. So that's why she was always on me, or that's why I was always on him, or that's why he said those things. It wasn't that inner person coming out being awful. Although an addict or an alcoholic who's been angry and fighting their addiction for years and can't figure out why they can't can become an angry person, so I don't mean that. But 
especially early on, it's not like the inner person's coming out. It's the wiring, it's interrupted. So they can't reach parts of the brain that would help them control the behavior because it's all caught in the addiction embedded brain map. And um, so what in long-term recovery, the family member needs to start to come to grips with what's happened to them and the addict alcoholic needs to come to grips with what's happened to them. And oftentimes they try to do it together with each other. And again, you have a communication embedded brain map and that's going to be tough to do because you're going to go back at it. So the addict comes home and um, the family member's well, did you go to a meeting? I thought you were going to go to a meeting. You said you were going to go to a meeting. You have to go to 90 meetings. Do you have a sponsor? Who's your sponsor? Let me talk to your You know, they go, ugh. And the addict alcoholic's like, whoa, wait a minute, because they just um, substituted the recovery for tracking on the addiction, if that makes sense. And so what are some of the things that people do in recovery, either individuals or, or family members, that help create those new neural maps? Mm-hmm. What are they? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, um, there's there's nutrition is unbelievably important, and it and so the simple things we can do, whether we understand this, and let me just add to, I did three years, I think it was, of intensive therapy with an addiction specialist to help me rewire my coping skills, if you will, because my my communication pattern was so automatic. Boom. <laughs> I felt anxious and I had a reaction, and it could be at my daughter's, did you do this? I thought you were going to. You said you would, but you better, and if you don't, you're not going to get into college, and then you will have a bad life. Kind of that all or nothing, black or white type thinking. So that's one area you can be doing, you know, these long-term things. I went to Al-Anon as your sort of a background, but then in the immediate parts you can also be doing while you're doing these longer-term pieces is... um, uh, nutrition, it's amazing what it does for the neurotran- for the whole process of a neural network. And then exercise, that has an amazing um, impact on our brain's neural network, the different components of them. We, we've always known it was good for the body, but it actually it's, it works in the brain just as well. So um, exercise, nutrition, sleep. Uh, families have often been, the addict alcoholic is passing out, or the, the family member is awake all night worrying. Nobody's sleeping, but what sleep does in the brain is something just incredible. It, it, it also helps with these neural networks healing and, and just staying healthy. Um, so getting a good night's sleep is another component. And then mindfulness, taking not so much that you got to go do an hour yoga, but if you can, great, but oftentimes that's tough to do in the early stage. But even just a five minutes of walking and trying to just force yourself to notice the color green, small amounts where you can come back and go, wow, I didn't think about any of this for five minutes. And you sort of give yourself the power to see you can start to control how you think. So those are four things you can do while you're doing other um efforts like right. Al-Anon or therapy. Are there specific um, things in terms of nutrients that people should be um, taking? Well, it's a balance, see, because all different, I mean, in a balanced diet, yellow vegetables do one thing, your um, dark greens do another, um, meats do something, that type thing. So people, the USDA has a marvelous website called My Pyramid, and it's a great way to... Um, understand nutrition and what goes into it and how to create a balanced diet. Also helps you with exercise. Um, 
So that I would just say suggest going to the USDA's My Pyramid website and and get that help there. But you know we always talk about superfoods, omega threes, that type thing. And you, but I just look at it more as just a balanced because again, typically when you're under stress, you let meals go by the wayside. You're just grabbing food, you're whatever's there kind of thing, and you're not eating a balanced diet throughout the day. And if you're drinking. You're not usually eating, or maybe if you are eating because you're drinking along with the eating, you're not eating things that are very good for you because it's chips or whatever you can get in quickly more to absorb, you know? So, yeah. yeah. Well, and I think, that too, with people are using alcohol, that's breaking down into glucose. So you're flooding your system with glucose, so mm-hmm. you've got the, the highs and lows from your blood sugar as well. Yes. So that in recovery it's really important that um, people try to maintain as uh, even blood glucose level as they can so then they don't feel triggered to use right yep you're absolutely right yeah yeah, yeah. so when we're um when we're thinking about this are um from from a therapeutic mm-hmm. point of view um you talk about contractual continuing care plans what what are they <laughs> this is uh to sit down with the family and the addict alcoholic um after after the detox stabilization and the rehab portion and and sometimes if people are not willing to go into a 28 day residence that's that's kind of tough to do it at that stage but it's it's after it's at the point where the family's looking at let's all try to live together mm-hmm. and so what you do is you sit down and you actually talk about i mean i have them each person or however many are in on that right I give them a list of questions to kind of be talking to or writing to or jotting their thoughts down. But then you sit down and you actually go through, um, you know, what the addict alcoholic um, or what, what the family member should expect from the addict alcoholic. In other words, families, you know, if the addict alcoholic is in a 28-day residence, say, for example, they're in a contained environment where all of everything is about their recovery. The family member is outside still dealing with the bills, the kids getting to school, their jobs, the fallout, if you will, also. While this is kind of going on, so they're not, they're not as well yet <laughs> as the person coming back after a 28-day session. But oftentimes the addict alcoholic expects and the family member expects of themselves, well, they went into treatment, so I should just be tolerant. And they continue that anxious feeling because they're feeling anything but tolerant. And so we need to address those kinds of um, issues so that the family expects and the addict alcoholic acknowledges that the family will feel fear. They will react and and to kind of let it roll instead of, well, you know, fall into your old communication patterns. Then kind of talk about what each is going to do for recovery so that it's sort of out there. Not that anybody's controlling anybody else's recovery, but you do know that, okay, you're going to be going to meetings or you're going to be going to therapy or I'm going to be doing an exercise class. And again, not as a way to hold a list and check you off as accountable, but to appreciate that there is going to be effort after the 28 days to um, to continue recovery activities, if you will. And um, one of the ones that's really important, I have found, is a code word. When you start to feel squirrely, that you just 
but you don't want to admit you're wrong and you don't want to talk about it because you probably really shouldn't be. <laughs> but then maybe you do that, uh, the code word stops the, the, the escalation and then you put it on your list of things to talk about you know, with the recovery coach or with your therapist if you're doing family therapy, that kind of thing. And we'll be right back after this commercial to talk more with Lisa Fredrickson about neuroscience and its contribution to long-term recovery. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family center recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. What it comes down to, ladies, is that defining line between been there, done that, and ain't going back, baby. Yeah, I've heard them call you yuppies and baby boomers, maybe even dolls, babes, darling, sugar, and sweetheart. But I say that women are truly amazing. Join Dr. Marlene for Amazing Women, Brains, Beauty, and Style every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Pacific right here on the Voice America Women's Radio Network. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. Um, this is Mary Woods. I'm your host today, and our guest is Lisa Fredrickson. Um, who has over 25 years' experience. She's the author of eight books, including um, Loved One in Treatment, Now What? And If You Loved Me, You'd Stop. Um, She has uh, a long-time interest in neuroscience and um, and the the concept of of addiction being a brain disease. And we've been talking for most of this hour about... um, the healing that can occur um, when we create new neural maps. And, you know, when when people go to self-help, they hear a lot of slogans that are very simple slogans, but they're so important because the more you repeat, easy does it, one day at a time, um, first things first, you're creating a new neural map for for your cognitive process. And um, when people are involved in cognitive behavioral therapy, they're also changing and creating new neural maps. Um, When people are going out doing activities that do not center around alcohol and other drugs, they're creating new behavioral neural maps. So, um, Lisa, I think, is there there more that you you can say about that? Because I think that's such an important concept. You bet. And what you said, Mary, there is just absolutely spot on. And and so it's, it's helpful if people understand how somebody got to be where they are, both sides of the disease, if you will, um, 
because neither one was doing it intentionally or, or viciously or, um, you know, and, and the choice goes away once it becomes an addiction until you stop the substance to get a, a, a new um, outcome. But for the family member, too, they can make a choice to not react to feelings automatically. So as you were saying, Mary, rewiring their brains, how are they going to set a boundary um, in their mind first uh, before they are confronted, say, say the person chooses not to con- not to stop drinking. I mean, family members can still start to heal their own brains and change their behaviors, which oftentimes has a very positive impact within the family and also with for the addict or the alcoholic to seek recovery on their own. But the trick about setting boundaries is to think them through. If you say, if you drink again and I'm leaving, what does that mean to you? Because you should be ready to go if that's what you're saying. So does that mean you have to have arranged to have a set of car keys, um, some cash, a place to go? How are you going to move the kids around? You know, you have to kind of think these things through so you don't make these constant threats and then never take action on them. But more importantly is to start to understand your own thinking and, or if you will, lack of thinking because we're often just in these um the reactionary part of our brain, the limbic system, instead of the thinking part of our brain. And it does take time. And that's the other part that was really hard for me. I just wanted it over. And unfortunately, this rewiring, it does take time. And um, which was in part why I wrote the book Loved One in Treatment. Well, the first one, If You Love Me, You'd Stop, was uh, done in 2008. And... um, to try to reach families where they are, because that's certainly where I had been ranting that phrase for a long time. But loved one in treatment is, and they're both very short, to give sort of a roadmap. It has actually checklists after each chapter of what you should have gotten out of that part, but how to understand addiction for what it is, understand what's happened in the family members' brains, but most importantly, how to find a way out and do it where you are at at the particular time. Because like you said, those phrases are wonderful just to jar your thinking. and But then sometimes if there was childhood trauma or some emotional abuse or you'll need to do maybe some kind of therapy around that or as you said, we're talking cognitive behavioral therapy, that's wonderful. Um, but there's there are many options that can help us out of this. Well, I, the other thing I think it's really, really important for everybody to understand that this is a chronic disease process. This is like heart disease, asthma, diabetes, hypertension. Um, once you contract this disease, it, there's no cure for it. It's just monitoring and maintenance and ongoing um, uh, recovery, just like someone who has diabetes or heart disease. And, mm-hmm. you know, um, it, sometimes I think we... We are, um, and you kind of mentioned this earlier, if if you have an angioplasty and you go out the next day and you, you know, you're eating um, at Five Guys and you're laying around watching football all weekend and you end up back in the ER next weekend, nobody's going to um, say, wow, you had your angioplasty, you don't get another, you know, 
um, episode of treatment. And, you know, we really need to understand and treat this like a brain disease. That um, for some people, you know, they're able to get abstinent right away and and they're able to get um, do all the cognitive restructuring and, and building new maps relatively easy. And other people struggle like other people struggle with other diseases. And I think yeah. that that's just so important for, for everybody to understand because people do recover and um, there's healing that occurs. Mm-hmm. Yes. And you're, you're absolutely right. And and to also appreciate that there's many ways to do it. For some people, it is 12-step programs. For some people, it's a 12-step program and uh, and therapy. Or you know, or it's um, maybe people get into triathlons. Or they're very there's a variety, and I think that's also important that it's not just one way. You know. Because maybe a 12-step program isn't right for somebody, so then they feel that that's what treatment is, and so they just don't do it. There are many ways to change your brain. Exactly. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's so true. And um, and I think, too, the more we can talk about this, when we think of HIV-AIDS and how that was treated early on, it was horrific. But suddenly, as not suddenly, but as awareness about what it is and how it's contracted, we now talk about it as a sexually transmitted disease that can be treated like this and prevented like this. And um, cancer or um, bike helmets or smoking or seatbelts, so many things as we learn the science behind why wearing a seatbelt saved lives or wearing a bike helmet was good and made laws around that, not saying that you can make laws around addiction, but just understanding the science and the research behind why doing it differently is helpful. You know, I also think how we that some of our own language thing. needs to change for people to really grasp this as a, as a disease. If somebody has heart disease, we don't have a name for them. Right, you right. Know, if, we don't call somebody, them a heart attack. <laughs> no, we don't call them a heart attack. We don't call somebody with AIDS. An AIDS person, yeah. you know, right. and but but the whole term addict is so stigmatizing, mm-hmm. and and why you know on some level I understand why you need to acknowledge that you have the disease, but why make that your um, self-image or, or the agree, term alcoholic? Mary. Because I so agree, it just doesn't. Um, you know, in the long run, it's it's what's happening internally that's important, and um, you know if. If we continue to use terms that create negative images in everybody's minds, mm-hmm. then we're never going to get anywhere. I mean, I mean, your example of AIDS has been amazing. I mean, look at how far advanced the treatment for AIDS has come in 15 years. Yeah. It far exceeds anything that's happened with addiction. Right. You know? and, and, and I think anonymity, and while that was important at a time, now if we understand this as a brain disease, and like you're saying, it's a disease like any other disease because on its simplest definition, a disease is something that changes cells. Unfortunately, this one changes them in the brain, and because the brain controls everything we think, feel, say, and do, it changes a person's behaviors. But it's just like any other disease. So like you're saying, I couldn't agree more where we don't say you're a canceric or a... Um, you know, this is somebody who has a disease, and this is how it's treated, and they're doing what they they're managing it. Yeah. So I, I just um, I would encourage everybody who's listening to just kind of think about that and um, really kind of see the person for who they are, as opposed to a label. Yeah. Um, 
because nobody, as you said, nobody intended to become an alcoholic when they first drank or addicted to any drug when they first used a drug. That was never anybody's goal in life. And no. um, and not everybody who uses ends up addicted. So that's the other important thing yes. to understand. Lisa, yes. if people want to get in touch with you, how, uh-huh. what's the best way to do that? Um, my website is Breaking the Cycles, and it has an S on the end of cycles.com. Or they can email me at lisaf at breakingthecycles.com. Thank you so much. This hour has just flown by, and it's, um, it's, great. it's great information, and I'm hoping it provides a lot of hope for people. Thank you, Mary. Thanks so much for having me. Um, you're very welcome, and have a great week, everybody, and we'll be talking to you next week. We appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.